Yeah, let's come to God's word. Father, we want to thank you for teaching us through your word about Jesus, about how we ought to live, about what life uh, should look like, and also the reason why it doesn't. Lord, but we ask most of all that you would open our hearts to believe, Lord, that your word is true, that you are good, and that Jesus is Lord, and we pray this together in his name. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, good morning. Good to be with you. We are looking at the book of Genesis in our Bible teaching here at City Reach Marion. And uh, Genesis 1 to 3, we're slowing down significantly because these uh, chapters of the Bible are foundational for our understanding of the world that we live in, about what it means to be human, about who God is, uh, and about our relationships with one another. And uh, today we come to part two of uh, looking at marriage, zooming in on the foundations for marriage as we go through these first three chapters of Genesis. I just want to um, just make a side remark, is that many of you may have a lot of questions that I haven't answered uh, for you that come out of the text. And so one of the ways to uh, dig deeper into some of those questions is to open up the Bible for yourself. If you're not a Bible reader, now is a great time to start because the Bible actually gives us understanding of who God is and what he's done as we read through it. One of the things that I practice every year is reading through the Bible as a whole. So consecutively from Genesis to Revelation, read through the Bible as a whole. That's just not, a th- that's not just a thing for pastors, by the way. Anyone can do it. 20 minutes a day, if you read quickly, is all it takes. Maybe a little bit longer if you want to think about it. But to be very honest with you, it is extremely helpful for getting a grasp on the whole counsel of God. That is how we fit into God's plan in this world, how Jesus is the centerpiece of God's plan for this world. So that's a great way to um, find some answers. Another way to find some answers is to keep coming. So if you're newish or don't come that much for whatever reason, a great way to find out more answers is to keep coming. That's an essential way to learn, to grow in your faith, is gathering together with other Christians because that's how we grow. We come under the power of God's word. And preaching is odd. It's odd because we get together on a Sunday morning and we hear someone talk about the Bible. Now, my words are not God's word. But God does something through the preaching of his word which makes Jesus become real as we listen and we take it in. Jesus says these words. Open Uh, Jesus says, if you have ears to hear, listen. Talks about our hearts being opened through prayer and through coming under his word. And so this morning, that's what we're doing. We're actually coming under God's word. We're actually asking that these things we read out of the Bible would become real for us today. Because when Jesus becomes real, when the Holy Spirit puts his hand upon your life and your soul, you change. You see God for who he is. Because let's be honest, people, this morning, we can't see God, can we? But he has this way of becoming real. Because you and I have values and beliefs that we hold to, though we can't see them. We all do. Various kinds of values and beliefs. But God wants to become the big one in your life. That's why he's gathered us to here. You think you gathered yourself here this morning. That's not fully true. God is the one that worked all things together, that you would be here this morning to hear about marriage. That's my side point. Let's get back to the big thing. All right, Genesis, marriage part two, the glory of God in marriage. This text is really helpful for us because it gives us the foundation for God's design in marriage. Firstly, marriage is from God, right? Let's have a look. Verse 18 and verse 21 of chapter 2 tell us that marriage is God's design. It is so that man would not be alone. Animals aren't good enough for companionship. I know we say dog, dog's a man, best friend. Not true. I prefer cats. That's weird, isn't it? But it's true. No, human beings, we need each other. Right? So verse 18, it is not good that the man should be alone. Right? Verse 21, what does God do? The Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed it up with his flesh. And Verse 22, and the rib that the Lord had taken from the man, he made into woman and brought her to the man. So God knows the problem. We're lonely alone. We need other people. Marriage is God's institution for community. 
Everything that we have has been birthed out of marriage. You may be a single person, whether you're not married yet, you're spied in married, whether you've been married before, widowed, divorced, wherever you're at on that spectrum, and yet you arose out of a union between two people. Whether that was marriage or not, this is God's design. So it's his design, it's his gift. Have a look at verse 22. God did it and he brought her to the man. God gifts marriage to us. And verse 23, I just love this. We, we go through this um, with couples preparing for marriage. Just look at this text in particular. And Adam just seems to praise that he has a wife. He praises God that he has a wife. He says, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. He can't help it. It is praiseworthy. So marriage then is God's design. It's God's gift. And it is praiseworthy not to be messed with. But that's a sermon for another day. So what has God done here? Well, he has given, and we see this in verse 24, a perpetual design for all of humanity, for all of history, for what marriage ought to look like. Everything that we have on marriage is based here. The Bible actually gives us a lot more detail throughout the rest of the book. And we see how Jesus actually makes it even clearer and stronger and gives us the key to making it work. We'll get to that later as well. But here is the foundation. Everything up until this point has been narrative. Verse 24 says, Therefore, this is why a man should leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. They shall become one flesh. And so that's where we get our understanding of marriage from. Now, when we come to the New Testament, we see that marriage is the, the relationship, the key relationship that is related to, uh, that is, sorry, um, connected to Jesus' relationship to the church, right? It's a relationship based on self-sacrifice, on covenant love, like a commitment stronger than a general promise, not a contract, but a covenant, not to be broken and death-defying power. Self-sacrifice, covenant love, death-defying power. This marriage relationship, the Bible tells us, when Jesus is at the centre, has the power for us to be fully known and fully loved, as we see in verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now that is a deep verse because that tells us the intention of the text. Marriage is a relationship, and different to other relationships, but there are some similarities, where you have the ability to be fully known by the other person. Because a husband or wife, your spouse, knows more about you than other people do. They know the good parts and they know the bad parts. And if they can know you better than anyone else and still say they fully love you, so fully known and fully loved, that is saying they are totally unashamed of you. They are yours and you are theirs. That is the goal of marriage, this union. And actually that reflects God's love for us. God says, I know you fully and I love you fully. And that, friends, is one of our greatest fears. That if someone really knew me, they wouldn't love me. If someone really knew what I was like deep down, my thoughts, even better than perhaps your spouse or your mother or father or the closest friendship and relationship that you have, if they really knew me, they wouldn't love me. There's a fear of abandonment. And yet the goal here in the story of the Bible is that God knows you fully and loves you fully, died to get you into a relationship where he will never leave you nor forsake you. So this picture of marriage actually has a lot to tell us about God himself. That's why we're looking at the glory of God in marriage. So there's three parts I want to go through with you today. And this is often... Um, I guess referred to uh, when we think about marriage, the leaving, the cleaving or the holding fast, it's more of a um, better English term, holding fast and becoming one flesh. So we'll look at them in order. The glory of leaving. The glory of leaving. What do I mean? Well, in verse 24, it says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother. That is, for 
marriage to work according to God's design, a new family unit must be established from the old. So, in the ancient Near East, typically if you were single, you stayed with your parents, you didn't move out. Today, commonly, not always of course, but commonly, when you become an adult, at some point, even if you're not married, you decide, I'm going to move out. Sometimes you move out into marriage, but if you're a young person, you decide often at some point, I'm going to move out. That didn't happen in the ancient Near East. You stayed until you got married. But God's design was that when you do get married, you leave behind the old family unit and become a new one. Your loyalty shifts. Oddly, though, in the ancient Near East, housing was expensive. So how did you move out? You moved out into a new room and just built a new room on the house and moved in there with your family. And you generally lived in one room together. A kid, a husband, wife and the children all together in one room. That's okay to do as well. So different culture, but the principle is really important for us to grab because we have different cultures all around the world and different relationships between parents and children. I mean, if you have adult children here this morning, you know what it's like, that, and if they've left and they've gotten married, you know what it's like to actually have those relationships change. And the Bible says they ought to change. They ought to become their own family unit. And so that you know, child of yours that leaves, if you're a parent and goes to get married, their loyalty shifts from you as the parent to their spouse. That's how it ought to work. Or another way to put it, God said, multiply, not add. God told us to be fruitful and multiply, that is to create new family units. So, does this mean, what does this mean practically? Let's just get down to the nitty gritty for a minute. Uh, let's say, for example, you move away. Uh, so, like a, a child becomes an adult, they move away from their uh, parents, they get married. Are they still under the authority of their parents? We know the Bible talks a lot about you know, children obey your parents and uh, the commandment is to honour your father and mother. To what degree do children obey their parents as they become adults? Well, let me say this, just as a quick point of clarification here. The Bible tells children to obey their parents whilst they're children, right? And that ends once you become an adult. And guess what? Becoming an adult's cultural. Right here it's 18 or so. But as your, parent, as your children are getting older, parents... You have to let go of your authority over them and gradually hand it over to them. But the responsibility of children to honour their parents never stops. That always continues. That's why we have that as a commandment. Honour your father and your mother. So, what happens when leaving goes wrong? That is, what happens when children don't leave properly or parents don't let go of their children when they get married. Now we see actually a really good example of this and Genesis is a great book for giving us truth about how relationships go wrong. In Genesis 27 and 28, um, Isaac and Rebecca, uh, so two um, very prominent figures in the book of Genesis, they have two sons, twins, their names are Jacob and Esau and yet they fail their sons dramatically. Right? So Isaac favours Esau. Esau is the strong, you know, burly, sort of hairy hunter type that, you know, loves being out in the field and killing his game and roasting it. You know, he's, and so his dad loves that about him. And yet his brother Jacob uh, is a man, they say, who dwelled in tents, whatever that means. But he didn't like to go, he didn't like the outdoors, apparently. Jacob wasn't an outdoorsy sort of guy. And so his mum loved him better. And there's this favouritism and rivalry which arises from the start and that continues to be passed on to the children. So the parents have a favouritism and rivalry even between themselves for what they think an ideal child is, right? And then the children grab onto this favouritism and rivalry and continue with it. So Jacob ends up leaving his family home under the threat of death from his brother. And Esau doesn't leave, but keeps marrying different women, either because he's lustful or because he's trying to please his parents, and he can't decide between the two. This gets really, really messy, and we see this passed on from generation to generation. Now, 
I bring this up because I want to tell you that sin follows you in life. So that is, you know, if, if, you, if your parents sinned against you, those patterns will follow you into your life. Right? We talk about trauma, we talk about generational sins. Sort of these terms are telling us that when you've been sinned against or when you've sinned, this sin seems to follow us into patterns of behaviour later in life. And so if you weren't, if your parents weren't able to leave well from their parents, then your parents probably weren't able to you to leave well, then you won't enable your children to leave very well. We need to acknowledge that. Your sin will follow you into a new family. I think it would be ideal for us if we were able to leave our sin behind if we want to get married and then enter the marriage without any sin. But you know what? That doesn't happen. Jealousy, rivalry, it follows us through. You know, like Esau, if you're a foolish and rash person before you get married, that's going to follow you into marriage. If you're like uh, Jacob and you're a liar, a cheat and a manipulator before marriage, guess what? It's going to follow you into marriage. So ideally we should leave the sin behind as well as leave our parents behind, but gee, that doesn't happen, does it? Now this tells us, I guess we should deal with our junk before we get married, but also two people getting married are two sinners getting together. You know, your prince or your princess is not so princely or not so princessly as you might think. So leaving is not so easy, but sin is much more dangerous, much more insidious, and it's very hard to leave behind. However, God's plan is that humanity would multiply and fill the earth. Marriage is a part of God's plan. So if you're a single person, you're spotting married, that's a good thing. You don't have to get married. The Bible upholds singleness actually really high, higher than any other religion and culture, really, because it has a God-glorifying position because even Jesus was single. However, if you desire to get married, that's good. If you are married, that's a good thing. That is a relationship and a family unit which God is using to bring his order and goodness into the world, right? So parents, you need to let your kids leave. Well, and children you need to let go of your parents as your primary loyalty when you get married and choose your spouse as your primary loyalty. So what might this look like? Well, imagine wife gets home early from work and organises a special dinner for husband as a surprise. Husband gets home and says, my mum has invited us for dinner. What do you do? Oh, that's dangerous, isn't it? Well, of course you would go, thank you, my dear wife, for making me this lovely dinner, I will stay home. And you won't even mention that mum has invited you over for dinner, won't you? But it's a bit more challenging than that, isn't it, in reality? The principle must remain that here, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Your primary loyalty is to your spouse. And it needs to say that. And a lot of marital problems arise because this is not done rightly. Now, God himself left a close relationship for the glory of his Father. Jesus left heaven. He left the closeness and intimacy of his relationship with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit to come to earth. He left it to come under the authority of a new family. Right? Jesus was obedient to his mother and father. He was born into poverty when becoming a human being. See, everything that we see told that we ought to do in the Bible, Jesus does. Isn't that incredible? You know, we're told that when we form a marriage relationship, and to get it right, we need to get our loyalties correct. When we form that marriage, whether you're a husband or a wife, you're loyal to your spouse primarily. They're your number one, always. But Jesus also left a special relationship, and he did it to come into a new family. And he did it because there was something bigger at work here. And there is something bigger at work in your marriage or prospective marriage relationship than perhaps you realise. 
It's for the glory of God. God is showing us love, self-sacrificial love through marriage. Okay, so we've looked at leaving, the glory of leaving. A text tells us more. It says, therefore the man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. Hold fast. This word is often used in the um, older English cleave. So you leave, then you cleave. They rhyme. It's a bit better, but doesn't make sense. Holding fast doesn't make much sense to us either today unless we give it context. That if holding fast is creating a covenant of commitment, that is a relationship founded with God at the centre. A relationship founded with God at the centre. So for marriage to work, you've got to leave behind the old family unit and start a new one. And then you must have a God-centered commitment to one another which will last. That's hard work too, isn't it? We call that marriage. We think of a marriage ceremony and we think of people getting up there and making vows to one another. What's going on? That ceremony has actually been passed on to us by generations and generations before us of something called a covenant commitment. That's when two people get together and say they're making a union. Two is becoming one. You might have heard that. It's actually in our text today. You might have heard that at a marriage ceremony you've been to. That is utterly important. It's saying this ought not be broken. This union. In fact, it says often, death do us, till death do us part. The idea is that the only thing that can break us is death itself. That's a very strong union. That's the one that we are called to have when it says here, to hold fast to his wife. Uh, in Germany, in 1499, a lady called Katharina von Bora was born. Uh, at five years old, she was sent into a convent to become a nun. And then at age 24, she got out. Uh, she was growing up in the time of what we call the Protestant Reformation. And so people were... Dis discovering the Bible again. The Bible was often restricted from the ordinary people because ordinary people couldn't read Latin. In fact, they couldn't really read and write that often. And the Bible was only in Latin. And so as some people discovered, hey, this isn't right. The Bible is for everyone. God's word is for all. Jesus is for all. And in fact, you're not saved through doing penance and there's no such thing as purgatory. It's not in the Bible. And... Actually, it's just through faith alone and repentance and faith in Jesus Christ that you enter into heaven, not through doing good works and not through worshipping Mary, because Mary is never worshipped in the Bible. They discovered all of these things in a short space of time, and so it really turned the church upside down. And so this young woman, Katharina von Bora, was a nun in the midst of this environment, and she was like, i got to get out. You can imagine, right? She thought, she's discovered that everything she thought was a lie. And actually... Christianity is really open to everyone. I don't need to be a nun. You know marriage had a bad name uh, during the, the Middle Ages? It was basically thought that it's better for the average person not to marry because then you'll be closer to God. So marriage was actually you know, shot down amongst people. That's why we had monks and nuns and the monastery became such a high order amongst people. They were forbidden from marriage. You know? So if you wanted to be really religious, really honouring to God, you had to be single which is pretty messy if we consider Genesis chapter 2, isn't it? What about loneliness? How does that factor in? So this young woman decided she needed to get out and she was listening and hearing about this faith in Jesus alone, which would save her. She was getting into the Bible for herself, not being ruled over by religious traditions. She actually got out of her, um, of her convent uh, amongst the fish barrels. She was sort of under, a, um, under a, a canvas with a few others, made her way out and made her way uh, to the castle at Wittenberg to a middle-aged monk called Martin Luther who was helping them escape. This man, Martin Luther, was writing all sorts of letters to people saying, whatever we've been up to for the past thousand years is wrong. We need to make some serious changes in Christianity. We need to go back to the Bible back to Jesus, back to faith alone. After uh, Luther was doing some really good work and said he found um, some homes for all the other women who had escaped from the convent, 
couldn't find a home for Katharina because they fell in love. And so they ended up getting married after a while and only after Luther, as Luther would, said to himself, well, marriage to Katharina would please his father, rile the Pope, cause the angels to laugh and the devils to weep. And so he decided that they would get married. And he did that because he realised that marriage is good in God's sight. And it is a relationship which we can hold fast under God's covenant love and bring a greater glory in his life than he would otherwise. Notice what he said. He said, it's better for me to get married. They, they loved each other, but Martin Luther had grew up in an environment where it was worse to get married, supposedly. But he went back to the Bible. And he thought, if marriage can be for the glory of God, yes, I will do it. And this commitment, this covenant will hold us together. So what does a covenant relationship look like? Well, actually, we need to look to someone who wasn't married to get a good idea of a covenant relationship. So in uh, the book of Ruth, we get a really interesting idea of what a covenant relationship looks like. So the book of Ruth is it's an odd book. Uh, it's just sort of a... a that it cuts to a really personal story of a, a woman who was married. Her name was uh, Naomi. Uh, she was married and uh, she had two sons. They went off into a foreign land to find a husband, uh, sorry, wives for her sons. There was a famine in the land and her husband died and both her sons died and so she was left alone with two daughters-in-law. It's like a terrible start to a story. And she makes this offer. She says, look, because like in the ancient Near East, in the ancient world, you're a single uh, widowed woman uh, with two dependents, essentially. You are in a whole lot of trouble, right? Your security is under threat. Uh, you're, like, it's very hard to gain an income caring for two sort of grown women. Uh, you know, you're always on the lookout for a spouse, but no one's really going to take you on because they've got to take on all three of you. Very, very complex and difficult. And so Naomi uh, says to her two daughters-in-law, look, you can leave. You can go back to your parents. You had left to make the new family unit, but you can go back. I'll release you from this relationship. But one of them, Ruth, said this, Do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. And your God, my God, where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. That's called a covenant. How do we know it's a covenant with God at the center? Because she uses the covenant name of God, Yahweh, in the text. She's a foreign woman, and yet she uses the covenant name, the name that people use when God, the Lord, is their God. She uses it. This is a covenant. This is a covenant because it says they will stay together till death do they part. Did you hear that? She said, may the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. You notice it was the joining of their communities to one another. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. I mean, this is what marriage ought to be, actually. It's funny we get it from a relationship between a mother-in-law and a daughter-in-law, but this is a really strong, principled covenant relationship here that we can learn from for marriage. But the key, the key to this relationship, the key to marriage, in fact, working, is that the Lord is at the centre. Yahweh is her God now. The God of Israel is the God of Ruth because Naomi's God is the God of Israel. This covenant has God at the centre. So the key to a marriage relationship, yes, of course, it is stay together till death do you part. We often say that in vows. It's not a contract that you do your part, I'll do mine. If you break your part, you're out. No, it's death to your part. All in, for better or worse, sickness or in health. But it's joining the communities of one another together. So your people are my people now. We're one. We don't stay separate. We become together. But the Lord 
is the one who holds it up. Your God is my God. Elizabeth Elliot, uh, in, her, in one of her books, uh, talks about marriage. She uh, was married to a guy called Jim Elliot. They married for about two years. Uh, they met in seminary and were thinking about going to um, reach unreached people groups with the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ. Uh, her husband, and Elizabeth and Jim, went to Ecuador uh, to uh, reach some people who'd never heard about Jesus before. They were known... Uh, for being very vicious uh, and a violent uh, tribe of people, but they thought, that's who we've got to go to. And so they went. Uh, um, sadly, um, Jim was killed by the very people he went to reach, and his wife, his widow, uh, continued on uh, in uh, serving God for many years afterwards. And so she spoke a bit about marriage and what it is. And this is what she says. Marriage is the union. It takes two to make a union. One cannot do it. When God created man, he saw that it was not good for him to be alone and he created a woman from and for him, specifically designed to help him, to be suitable for him, to be his mate. There is no competition in a union. There is no playing off one against the other. No keeping score, no making of comparisons or insistence on 50-50 division of anything. Each is for the other, pulling with and not against him. She is lifting up the ideal of marriage and saying, this is what it ought to be. And I know you're thinking, and of course I'm thinking, as I'm reading this going, it's not like that, but it ought to be. I'd love it if it was like that, but it's not. We often feel in marriage like we're pulling against each other, not going together. There are good times, however, where we feel like we're on the same track, going in the same direction, and you feel a sense of oneness. And yet often in marriage, we feel pulled in different directions. We're not holding fast in our union as we ought to be. Notice that Eve was made out of Adam, and so the marriage is the two that were one, becoming one again. It's how it ought to be in every respect. And yet in practice, it seems very, very heart. So how can we be united in love in this covenant relationship? So you actually think the difficulty of marriage, God is in the middle of. Let me say that again. The difficulty of marriage, God is in the middle of. Why? Because whom else are you going to turn to? You can't turn to your spouse because they're the one that's giving you the trouble, right? <laughs> you can't turn to another person, because then you're breaking your marriage commitment. If you want to be faithful, to whom will you turn for help? God. And it makes absolute logical and reasonable sense to turn to him who designed it, him who joins husband and wife together, say help. And so difficulty in marriage, whatever that looks like, In the union of marriage, God is in the middle of because he is using it to draw both of you to him, to bring you into a synergy where the sum, so the whole is greater than the sum of its parts, where the two of you together are better in glorifying God than you would be separately. That is God's design for marriage and your trouble in marriage is an avenue for God to come in and to help to bring life, to make things as they ought to be, where the Lord is the centre. That is the purpose of it. So um, back to Katerina Luther. She said, it must have been a weird relationship, a monk and a nun, because, you know, (laughs) like uh, Martin Luther was a monk and he was in his 40s when they got married. He'd been a monk a long time and he sort of settled himself in that. He'd sort of, started reading the Bible for himself, dangerous thing to do, right? And started believing it, even more dangerous thing to do. It sort of turned the world upside down, really, didn't it? I mean, like most of our culture today is, is totally influenced by the Protestant Reformation. Right? Every historian acknowledges that. And it came from a guy picking up this and getting into it and believing it even about marriage. And Katerina was doing the same. 
So this monk and nun, they pioneered the Reformation view of marriage. Katarina, actually, well, um, Martin Luther was off, you know, doing his theology and sort of Bible teaching and that kind of stuff and writing letters to everyone. Uh, Katarina managed the monastery where her and Martin lived. She also got, get this, ran a brewery and bred cattle to provide for the family. And Martin called her the boss of Zuseldorf. I mean, you'd just love to be a fly on the wall in that marriage, wouldn't you? Um, Martin and Katarina Luther served God hand in hand in what was a very complex life. Uh, the Black Plague rolled through uh, during their life. Um, they faced poverty, severe poverty, because when uh, Martin Luther died in 1546, even though he uh, gave everything in the will to his wife, that was against the law, would you believe it, in that day. So she had to be kicked out. She lost everything. She was out on Poverty Street. They had six children together, but they had a full and joyous life during their marriage. Now, Katerina had experienced a relationship that was held fast by a lifelong covenant with God. She experienced the goodness, joy, and hardship of marriage, even the loss of her spouse. But in 1552, after the breakout of the Black Plague and several wars over the past years, Katerina suffered a fall from a cart at the age of 53, and she was very close to her death. But even she, on her deathbed, described what really held her fast. She said this, I will stick to Christ as a burr to a cloth. And then she died into the arms of her saviour, Jesus. She knew, even with the death of her spouse, right, that there was someone stronger than she, someone stronger than her marriage bond holding fast to her, Jesus. She had Jesus holding her fast like a burr to a cloth. So God has said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Leave. We're to make a new family unit. Move loyalties. Try and move away from sin, though it's very hard. And start a new family unit together in marriage. Focused with God at the centre. Right? We're to have a covenant commitment, holding fast to one another. Where someone greater than us, even in the difficulties, is going to do something good through our marriage in us. That the sum together of us will be glorifying to God more than it would be with us apart. And the only way to have that is when God himself is at the centre of this marriage relationship. And now we're told that the two shall become one flesh. In uh, 2006, I was hiking through um, what's called Tiger Leaping Gorge in Yunnan province in China. Beautiful place. And I, I started sneezing uncontrollably. I've never really had this before in my life, but just I sneezed once or twice. You know, the first couple of sneezes, it feels really good. And by the, like, the sixth, you're like, when's this going to stop? Well, I sneezed constantly for two hours on this hike, and I just suddenly realised there was all these wildflowers around me, which are stunning, and it's like on the side of a mountain, uh, and I'm just wondering how these wildflowers had grown up, but they were tremendous, and there was a special beauty to them, because they'd survived the harsh elements and yet flourished. Now, wildflowers have a special beauty to them because the conditions that they grow in. Right? They can survive the elements. You know, the, the seed lays dormant or the bulb lays dormant uh, in winter and then in spring it bursts in life and, and the ground is covered with them in places where you wouldn't imagine them to be and that's why people are like, transfixed when they go out into fields of wildflowers. On the other hand, hothouse flowers, right? you can just grow in a controlled, created environment, and they look beautiful, but they don't have something that the wildflower has. And if you take a hothouse flower out into the elements, what's it going to do? It's going to die. Right? It can't handle change. It can't handle the cruel realities of heat and cold. Now, I want to say that true spiritual love 
has an enduring power that human love doesn't. Right, human love is like a hothouse flower sometimes. In fact, human love can feel more intense, stronger, more powerful than spiritual love. You know, we see it in the movies, don't we? You know, people, uh, you know, they get together, they tear each other's clothes off and whatever else happens after that and they have this amazing, you know, like uh, start to their relationship and then actually reality sits in because most movies actually have, particularly these days, have the early stages but not the sort of normality of sort of married life and if you have kids and everything after that. They don't have that. They just have the intense human love stage at the beginning. But then when the relationship gets into the real world, when you know the, the, physical, the charm of physical beauty wears off or the person annoys you more than you realised or whatever it is, you know, the wheels fall off. And in reality, true spiritual love is far more like wildflowers. True spiritual love does not fade when the hothouse flower human love does. You see, personalities clash, beauty fades, illness. Illness makes life hard when you are married. And so as the hothouse flowers grow strong in their hothouse and then fade in the wild, the wildflowers have found the source to grow through trouble, to grow through different seasons. You see, hothouse relationships won't endure a selfish heart. You see, really to have marriage work, to become this one flesh, this beautiful union, you've got to have something that is, goes beyond that affection, that just ordinary human love, because in the end, that won't hold you together. Do you know why our divorce rate is so high? Right? Because marriage, staying in marriage is optional. If they stop satisfying you, you're out. Um, and, and the rates of divorce are only increasing. Not only that, but less people are getting married today because it just seems all too hard. All too hard. When Jesus spoke about marriage, and in fact he referred to this very text in Matthew 19, verse 6, this is what he says. He says, So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. What's Jesus doing here? He's saying everything that's in Genesis is absolutely true. In fact, he strengthens it. He says, you know what this means? This means what God has joined together. Let not man separate. Marriage is so important to God that it is the one relationship which he likens the love between Christ and the church to. So important. The unity of it, the one fleshness of it. You know, Jesus' disciples in Matthew 19 had a huge problem with Jesus saying this. They thought it must be better not to marry than have this kind of binding relationship because they were afraid that they would have been stuck for life in an unhappy place. But in this, we actually see that Jesus is just affirming what is written in Genesis 3. It is good. It is God's design. It is a gift it is something to be upheld and praise worthy. But Jesus is also saying, God must be the one to bring it together. You know, even with all the sin and destruction wrought by the human race after the fall, when we get to Genesis 3, we'll look at that next week, even after marriage has been so tarnished and harmed by sin, the Bible's really open about that. Even after our broken world has messed with marriage so many times, Jesus upholds it again, can you believe it, as the ideal and even strengthens it. What sin has damaged, Jesus has come to heal. By his stripes we are healed, the Bible says. Now at this point, like the disciples, you and I try and come up with exceptions. What about this in marriage? What about this? What if my spouse has done this? What about this? Now, Jesus does give a couple of exceptions. He says, till death do us part. He also talks about sexual immorality. Like, if you cannot stay together after sexual immorality, if there is not repentance, 
if things can't be reconciled, he does permit divorce. But it is the exception, not the rule. It's not God's intention here. And it does happen. We have to be honest about it. But Jesus is making the case that God has something really special intentioned here. In fact, he's showing us that the only way that we can have marriage by God's design is with a saviour at the middle of it. Why would Jesus bring up something that's thousands of years old again? Why would he unearth a text from Genesis 2.24 and say, this is how it ought to be still, unless he believed it? I mean, it, you know, the Bible tells us Jesus is the same God who's gifted us marriage in Genesis chapter 2. And he's back in the Gospels telling us this is the way it ought to be. This is the way it ought to be. How do we find that special transformative power that God would give to us? Well, the Bible tells us that Jesus not only came and became a human, he left his family unit behind. The Bible tells us he doesn't just offer this covenant love relationship to us, but he came to deal with the very thing that crushes marriage, that crushes our relationship, sin itself. What is the root cause of marital problem? Sin. Selfish behavior. The root cause is sin. And Jesus, our sinless, selfless saviour, came and died for sin on a cross so that as we would come to him, we, have, we know we come to someone who laid down everything for the sake of his spouse. And so how could we not do the same for ours? That's what moves in our hearts. When you have an example which is so great, so high, so actually life-transforming, it gets inside of you so that you begin to do that for your spouse. I mean, the secret to Christianity is believing. The secret to Christianity is that the things in here are true. And that if you believe it, if you trust that Jesus really died for the forgiveness of your sin, that he really is risen from the dead, then your marriage, no matter what state it's in, has hope. Because there is a God in heaven with Jesus Christ at his right hand, interceding on your behalf right now, inviting you to himself to be the one who works it out, to be the one who brings healing, to be the one who grants you forgiveness that you might forgive your spouse. That is the God that we have. In uh, verse 25, I mentioned this before, but it says, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. There's the idea that they're fully known and fully loved. This is before sin has entered the world. They've got nothing to be ashamed of. They're there in all of their humanness together and they are unashamed. Now, you and I will have trouble in marriage or without marriage, actually. The Bible's really clear about that. We talked about singleness last week too. You and I will have trouble in and out of marriage. And so we need a hope. We need a hope that there is something greater coming for us. A hope that there is a God who will make things right in the end. We need a hope that even... If our marriage fails us, we have a God who won't fail us. This is what I call the unashamed coming glory of God. In Revelation 21, we read these words. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. And neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. The God who left heaven, who came to earth, he did it to create a bride for himself. He has returned to heaven, but he is coming soon. 
And this God is the one who has a greater marriage in store for all of us with hope that we look forward to when he will make every wrong right. And so no matter where you are in the marriage singleness spectrum of relationships, this hope is open to you today to enter into. Because if singleness has failed you, you have a marriage relationship with God that is a lifelong binding for all eternity covenant commitment of joy with no sin. If your marriage has failed or your spouse has died, you have hope of the resurrection of the dead with Christ for all eternity, your spouse who will never die. If your marriage is difficult, if you feel like you're pulling in different directions and there doesn't seem like a way forward, there is a God who by his stripes we are healed, who has a future of hope with us and he's bringing us there. And even now, touching on your heart with the difficulties that you experience, he wants to bring a bit of heaven into your heart, reminding you that he will never leave you nor forsake you, that you can still be a servant to a spouse whom is difficult. And if marriage is good for you, you have a greater one to look forward to. You have a greater hope that will pull at your heart until you're finally there. Let's pray together as we commit ourselves into God. Lord God, we thank you for your goodness, your power, love, the revelation that you, Lord Jesus, are the one that we're really looking for. You're the one that makes marriage right. You're the one that makes singleness good because you yourself have a greater marriage in store for us. Lord, help us to look forward to this with hope. Help us to not be consumed by our own sin, our own concerns about other people, uh, Lord, but rather be consumed by you, a good and glorious king who would lay down his life for his friends. Lord, thank you that even though we were sinners, you died for us. Thank you for your love which endures. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.